Turning handwritten notes or forms into machine-readable data, that's been a challenge for the Census Bureau for decades. And for the last several decennial counts, Census has gotten better and better at it. That's thanks in large part to the work of my next guest. He's a senior computer scientist with 60 years of service. And now he's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program, Paul Friday. Mr. Friday, good to have you on. Good morning. Pleased to be on. Yeah, my first question is, what's kept you going for 60 years of federal service, or you're 59 and a fraction, I guess, at this point? Well, there's uh, two reasons. The first reason is, in my second year of federal service, I was selected to go to be a White House summer intern under John Kennedy. And I met him in the Rose Garden and shook his hand and spoke one or two sentences. And also, he earlier, uh, during the inauguration, uh, challenged people to uh, not ask what their country can do for them, but what they can do for their country. So that's uh, carried me and inspired me for my entire career. And there are other people, or there were other people in the government, who were equally inspired by uh, Kennedy's challenge to government service. And the second reason I've stayed for this amount of time is that in the first half of my career, the government did all of their projects in-house with government employees. And we built some spectacular machines and uh, software to assist in doing the census. And then halfway through my career, the government decided that outsourcing was better, faster, and cheaper, and they sidelined our internal efforts. So since then, in the second half of my career, I've implemented some software for the government that was used in the 2020 census, and I've inspired other people. So in this 2020 census, there were several teams that put together internal software that was used in the production during 2020, and we're trying to bring back the projects into the government and retrieve them from the outsourcing practice. Got it. So you're a man on a mission. And is it fair to say that in your 60th year of federal service, you are still actively writing code? Yes, that's correct. So that's my interest. And I've done that for my entire career without leaving the technical arena and going into management. I was always interested in the engineering profession. And just out of curiosity, what language are you coding in these days? The language that I write in is called Pascal, and uh, it was a language out of the 1970s. And it's very clear. The style is uh, elegant and classic. So I've stuck with that all this time. And uh, the tools that uh, I use are very uh, efficient and allow you to get down to the low level of the machine to write fast code. Got it. And what initially interested you in the idea of handwriting or written form recognition? And what was the essential challenge you had to solve to be able to have machines that could do that with some degree of reliability? Well, in the 20th century, we built machines that photograph the uh, census questionnaires to 16 millimeter uh, microfilm and then scanned it with a device called Fosdick. And we built all of those machines internally. And OCR was the character recognition was not mature at that time. And the computers only became powerful enough to do imaging and the character recognition in the 2000 census. And that census was contracted out to a defense contractor. So I wanted to pull that back into the government. And I spent that time writing a software package that uh, would do the character recognition 
and we've used it for almost 20 years in uh, over 200 different applications for the economic census and the agricultural census and the decennial census and the American Community Survey. So it's been very successful, this software package. And over the years, other federal agencies, I'm thinking of the Postal Service and perhaps the IRS, have also had a need or an interest in the idea of turning handwriting into usable data. Did you ever collaborate with anyone like that, or have you been pretty much census-focused? It's been census-focused, although we've done several applications for government customers outside of the Census Bureau. And we also did the uh, decennial census of Kenya and Bangladesh. We're speaking with Paul Friday. He's a senior computer scientist at the Census Bureau and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And what's it like being kind of, you know, pardon my expression, the grand old man of programming at Census when all these relative kids coming through with their C-sharp and their C++ and their Python and et cetera, et cetera. Do you feel you can teach them a thing or two? Well, the talent that uh, we have is amazing. And uh, the young people that uh, have come into the Census Bureau and done many of the internal projects that supported the 2020 Census are amazing and way beyond my capabilities. So the thing that I contributed was the example of being able to compete against the outsourcing initiatives and produce internal projects. And so I believe that I've inspired several capable, amazing people to produce systems for the 2020 census. A questionnaire system was produced by uh, a uh, internal team of all government employees and put into place in preference to a contracted system at the very last moment before 2020 uh, census started. What keeps you going at this point? Uh, the technical challenges themselves sound like they still interest you. I mean, what are you working on now, for example? Well, I'm working on the uh, project that uh, did the 2020 census. We have to migrate it to other platforms and update it. So that's one thing. And documenting this process is another and the third thing, of course, is to write the history of this and the history of all the employee-implemented projects which have been successful in contrast to the outsourcing that has produced some spectacular failures. So I would like to drive this process to bring back the projects to the employees in the government. And what kind of support did you get over these decades from the various census directors that come and go? Well, I think my work is in the back room and pretty obscure, but the support that I received is they allowed me to be an independent researcher and produce these things without interfering with it. And what do you do to keep yourself current on, say, well, you're using Pascal, so how do you stay current with, say, the requirements that Census has so that you know what to program? I mean, how do you interact with the people on the mission front so that you know what their problems are that then you can translate into code? Well, I'm senior enough to not only be a, a software producer, but also to understand the requirements in the business end of the Census Bureau. So the fact that that is combined into one person, having mission-specific knowledge and implementation capabilities, is the thing that allows 
employee-generated systems to be so appropriate to task as opposed to outsourcing projects that have to go through our requirement writers and lawyers and contract specialists at arm's length. So all of the young people in the Census Bureau now who are producing employee-implemented systems have systems expertise in the IT arena and also business case knowledge all rolled into one person. And you can't beat that. (laughs) And did you ever have the temptation over the years to chuck it and join some nice private sector startup or one of the big companies and you'd be rolling in dough right now? Yes, I had that temptation, but I'm glad that uh, I stayed where I am because I've been able to have an influence that I wouldn't have had I migrated around to various companies. Tell us how you started in federal service. My first year in service was in the Army Map Service. One of the projects that we worked on in 1960 was producing the first map of the moon that was going to be used for the Apollo landing site selections on the moon. So I got to work on that before I went to the Census Bureau. And then in uh, 1969, I got to go down to Cape Kennedy, Cape Canaveral at the time, and watch the Apollo 11 take off to the moon. So that was kind of a closed uh, loop thing in my career that was very rewarding and satisfying. And in between, you got to shake President Kennedy's hand when you were a White House intern. When I got to shake hands with uh, President Kennedy in the Rose Garden, President Clinton did the same thing when he was young and got to meet the president and shake his hand. And uh, interestingly, he went on to become the president of the United States. And I stayed in the back room uh, building hardware and writing software uh, behind closed doors. So that is a contrast that I think about quite often. And what's your plan? How long do you hope to keep working? Well, maybe a year or two. I think uh, 60 years is enough for uh, anybody. (laughs) Paul Friday is Senior Computer Scientist at the Census Bureau and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals Program. Thanks so much. It's been an honor speaking with you. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you for uh, the opportunity. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, 
that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. 
It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, 
But we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.